So welcome. So the the theme, thought, thought, and freedom. Maybe you're getting the sense that we we have to uh, have to weave in and out of meaning making, and uh, we have. Uh, a kind of reverence for for wise thought and a reverence for for silence and this this tradition the the insight tradition it um it really does honor samadhi the the uh kind of gathering of the mind the unification of attention and um that's where there's there's very very little proliferation of meaning. There's very little associative anything. Maybe it's just sensations of the the breath or the the bliss of silence itself, or sometimes. Even even thinner, just the the uh, a kind of blackness that is blacker than black, just space. And um, very little meaning. And it's healing. It's healing not to be besieged by meaning. You know, sometimes it's there's this sense of like, well, we have to we have to learn from practice, we have to do vipassana, we have to do mindfulness in order to have insight, and that's fair enough. But um but even when we're not learning, healing can be happening, deepening can be happening, the relief of not being besieged by meanings. And it feels like, um, like shelter from Anicca, shelter from Anicca. Sometimes we step out of meaning, all the meanings that we come to practice drowning in, into stillness in order to make better meanings. We call that insight, insight, retreat, center. We're not talking our way into insight. Um, We're observing with a very flexible but potent mind. Sometimes um, we use thoughts to surmount thought. 
reminders and slogans and mantras that we use, thoughts to surmount thought. It made me think of of a a philosopher, Wittgenstein, who um, early early in his career um, especially was, was really trying to pare down philosophy. He viewed so much of it as nonsensical wrote this kind of treatise, um, which concluded with this, um, said, my propositions serve as elucidations in the following way. Anyone who understands me eventually recognizes them as nonsensical when they have used as steps to climb up beyond them. They must, so to speak, throw away the ladder after they have climbed up it. They must transcend these propositions, and then they will see the world aright. This is how certain meditation instructions function. Like a ladder we toss away when we've used the steps. using thought to surmount thought. But much of the change we experience on this path is driven by stories, by emotionally charged Dharma stories, Dharma stories that help us organize our lives and our own unfolding, healing, awakening. And so last night I quoted Martha Nussbaum saying, um, you can't really change the heart without telling a story. And indeed, when you look around these Dharma scenes, we have, we have our stories with story of the Buddha, story of Mara, forces of suffering, the story of, of suffering and release and a path. And you, you have your stories too. The um, story of how you got into practice, of what has changed, of what hasn't, of what you aspire towards. The stories that, that attempt to integrate all the bits of experience across time. And uh, there's this tendency in us that we always, uh, with those stories, we always want to go to press, you know, we want to uh, publish. But um, they're always just drafts, yeah. All stories. Have uh, have their limits, something that lies on the other side of them, and so we we cherish our stories and we um, are circumspect too. 
William James said, nothing includes everything or dominates over everything. The word and trails along after every sentence. And sometimes it's a tragedy that shatters our story. And sometimes it's insight that shatters our story. And we have to put it back together, but not exactly in the same way. And so as we live and as we, we practice, we are um, we're learning how to tell our stories, how thoughts are useful, what stories are useful. This is what Inez was pointing to last night, the kind of skillful, skillfulness of, of uh, the thought world. And... Um, as we practice, we, we cultivate and develop and tailor our stories for our hearts. So I was at a, um, a conference some years ago, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years ago. And, um, and one of the IMC teachers, um, Andrea Castillo, was was one of the presenters at this conference um, at Spirit Rock, and um, and she was describing her experiences of uh, uh, teaching Dharma in Spanish, and um, and she's recounting one of her, her students, a bilingual student uh, with, um, said, who had practiced in the Dharma scene and heard the Dharma in, uh, in English. Um, but this student said, the, the kind of like described the blessing of hearing, uh, hearing the Dharma in, uh, in her first language, yeah? And the student used the phrase, um, to hear the Dharma in my mother tongue. And uh, that phrase, there's something about that that always touches me. That phrase became a kind of like mantra throughout the conference that I repeated, another person repeated, to hear the Dharma in your mother tongue, yeah? And um, we, uh, we all need to, to hear the Dharma in our mother tongue, yeah. M- meaning, you know, the language of our own, our own heart. Um, Ajahn uh, Suchito said, um, uh, Generally, people say the path starts with wise view. He said, like, yeah, okay, fair enough. But the path truly begins when the Buddha walks into your heart. And uh, 
this is a very personal encounter, very idiosyncratic encounter. And um, uh, and sometimes when I when I start practice discussions, and, and you know, I'll say, uh, you know, in a group of whatever six people or eight people, I'll say, you know, in the main hall we have to say one thing to seventy people, and um, and to say the same thing to seventy people is almost criminally negligent, you know. Like, because doesn't, how do we honor the idiosyncrasies of this path of how our, our path unfolds? Yeah. The path is very, very personalized and our histories and personalities and emotional styles all matter. Yeah. And so, um, we we have to we have to hear the dharma in our mother tongue we have to develop ways of speaking about our practice to ourselves that are empowering i, I was looking back at um some old old notes and i saw notes from a talk i gave in in uh, the summer of 2008 I must have just started teaching and um and the the talk was about how how dharma practice is a kind of series of pep talks that we develop for ourselves and um that we need to tailor our our pep talks, they have to be in our mother tongue. They can't be generic of um, let go, be mindful, be nice, be whatever. Like it really has to resonate with ourselves, you know, when we have to develop like a sense of what we need to hear. And sometimes the language is just subtle differences, but it really matters at how almost that puzzle piece locks into our heart. This is from uh, mid-1800s, Patro Rinpoche. This, this is a pep talk. Yeah, this is a famous pep talk. Advice from me to myself. Listen up, old bad karma patrol, you dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception. You've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this empty life. Your mind is spinning around, carrying, uh, uh, spinning around about carrying out a lot of useless projects. It is a waste. Give it up. 
thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. And then the passage culminates with um, let go of everything, everything. So I wanted to share um, a few thoughts, uh, thoughts that have become my pep talks, thoughts that I've picked up along the way um, from here or there that uh, have become kind of, uh, yeah, a little bit of a mantra in my my uh, heart and mind. Quite quite early in practice, I I I don't even remember how, but I hooked up with this this um, lovely group of very senior practitioners in a Tibetan Buddhist lineage, and um, you know it was like. I don't know, one of them, this woman was, had done the three-year retreat. She was a lama, this other long-time practitioner, like fascinating Shakespearean actor, all these characters, and then me, you know, 23 or something. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was just like, where am I? Yeah. And they were students of Zeger Kongtru Rinpoche who we would hook up a speaker phone. It was not, not the uh, plush elegance of the IRO Zoom situation. It was a speaker phone. And um, uh, we would call into Crestone, Colorado. And the line that stayed in my heart um, was... Um, Kongtru Rinpoche said, um, are you trying to rearrange the furniture in your dream or wake up? And sometimes you really um, need this kind of jarring possibility. I've been trying to rearrange the furniture in my dream. And it was this kind of like exhilaration, like, oh my goodness, maybe I'm kind of trying to do this whole life thing a little wrong. And that didn't spark some kind of spasm of self-harshness. It was just like insight, even if it's jarring or sad or whatever, insight tastes delicious. that sense of just like unintimidated by truth. 
and it may cut deep in one way, but it feels good in another. Feels like relief. And that line, that line, just the way that was articulated, just sort of startled me into deeper questions and deeper renunciation and this sort of like, wow, what have I walked into here? This is not what I bargained for. And um, the Dharma, you know, it deepens when the kind of frame expands, you know, when the Dharma frame expands. Our aspirations, the way we start practice, the way we go about practice, we almost always start too small, where we're, we're sort of like, and without really knowing it, for me, I was just like trying to wedge the Dharma into the infrastructure of my neurosis to rearrange the furniture. And um, I did have the sense, like the kind of slightly haunting sense that the way I was living wasn't going to work out even if I kept getting better at it. I had the sense of like, this isn't going to work out. And so there was a certain kind of ecstasy in the possibility, like maybe, maybe there is a path. And so I found myself kind of in the deep end of all of this quite early in practice, that it wasn't about getting happier within the framework I had imagined for my life. And that was productive. That, um, yeah, cut through the tendency to turn myself into a a kind of self-improvement project. And um, it was startling, but um, on this path, you don't get to decide what you wake up to. You don't get to design your own healing or pick the fruits of practice as if in a candy store. But I knew, you know, I knew in that moment that I was, uh, I was fortunate, fortunate to have encountered um, a kind of radical way of approaching the human condition. the context of a a small, very small bit of Zen practice I did, received the the instruction um, to sit, sit like a dying person. And um, there are really, really two, two sides of that. 
at least the way I interpreted it. But um, one is, of course, a reflection on mortality, tenderness, and and grief and loss, and um, and the other is a dim, kind of something about non-delusion, non-delusion, and they're linked. They're linked. You know, if if we don't um, develop a conscious relationship with helplessness, we become rigid, uh, defensive, aggressive. The self sense of self congeals. Some of what we're our practice is is developing even just like one tiny bit of equanimity with helplessness. And we are we are as as humans maybe say we're desiring machines and every desire includes our existence in it. And that that makes death a very serious problem. And I sometimes share like that as as a, one of my memories as as a kid was like I would imagine things falling away, you know, almost like a kind of experiment, little emotional experiment I would do with myself. Like I'd imagine things falling away. I would imagine first that like I did not exist, that I was not born. And then that my family didn't and humans, the human species and the world and the solar system and the universe and history and time itself, that nothing, nothing existed. And all the kind of light and color of the world would like momentarily fade out. And then I would totally freak out. (laughs) And uh, I don't know, maybe it was getting a kind of tiny glimpse into into emptiness, like uh, just the contingency of all things, that there was a sense of my life was guaranteed by something. My life was ordained by something. The necessity of me in this world, the necessity of everything that I knew. And there was just a sense like it could have been otherwise. And nothing guarantees anything. And without really knowing it, I I think I got into practice deeply uh, because I realized the immensity of losing everything. And uh, I've been very, even though I did not, I did not directly face loss early in life. I've been very conscious. It's been very close to my heart since I was quite young. 
And uh, even even when, as a, a young person, I would see older people, I would not feel separate. I would see sick people. I would uh, not feel separate. And Su- Su- uh, Susan Sontag said, um, Everyone, everyone who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the sick. Although we all prefer to use the good passport, sooner or later, each of us is obliged to identify ourselves as citizens of that other place. My um, paternal grandma, my dad's mom, died before I was born. Died, my da- died when my dad was was um, twelve, just before his bar mitzvah. And um, sometimes I, I would think, like, okay, here's my dad. This. Here's this boy, 12 years old. Mom is dead. His dad, my grandfather, had a serious psychiatric illness. Here's this, my dad, this boy. Yeah. And um, he and his brother, not accidental, studied medicine, trying maybe to, um, to master health and illness and death and um, and so somehow transmitted through the kind of um, through the generations there's this this sense this sense in me like I I needed to do a lot of work on my heart to prepare my heart over a long period of time to actually open to the changingness of life and to the inevitability of loss. And I needed a path that would hold, um, would hold death in a kind of reverential way. And, um, this is what what motivated the 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 Buddhist path, after all, like the truth of Anicca. And it just seemed like this looming force in my own heart and mind. And um, and there there are yeah, powerful ideas, ideas from social psychology research that that as as animals who are self-aware that can can conceive of our own our own death the the fear the resulting fear often makes us defensive it doesn't have to i don't think it has to but typically the fear makes us, we build defensive stories. 
we we build meaning in a way to defend ourselves with little literal or or some kind of symbolic immortality the literal of I will not die or the symbolic of, well, I will die, but I'm an American. And that continues, or I'm a Buddhist, or I'm a whatever. And according to this set of ideas, um, terror management, even self-esteem has a defensive quality that I am an enduring, significant being rather than I am one out of a trillion animals. Yeah. And the Buddha was onto this, of course. So shortly after his enlightenment, he said, um, the world is held by being, afflicted by being, yet delights in being. Yet what it relishes brings fear, and what it fears is pain. This holy life is lived to abandon suffering. Now, I don't know how idealistic to get about all of this, and we're not living a monastic life, but I do feel like um, developing the heart, developing the heart in this realm, even a little bit, offers a lot of freedom. Because um, mortality met with our habit energies, met unconsciously, will tend to harden our heart rather than soften it. And will tend to harden, yeah, to congeal sense of self in a way. It may be the self congeals, uh, kind of, we hallucinate the sense of self to orchestrate our own survival. That, um, that this very sense of, of self is a kind of um, effect of a certain kind of fear, the need to manage, to control samsara. And so from this point of view, like the very experience of self has a kind of defensive, fearful quality, And so when I hear this, when I say this, to sit, sit like a dying person. Some of it is acclimatizing to the truth of Anicca, and some of it is cutting through some of the delusion and the pettiness and the clinging and the selfing. Yeah. 
that arise out of the mortality awareness Camus said come to terms with death thereafter anything is possible and um this exploration offers the opportunity to to consider what this moment might be like if it were futureless that's one of the aspects of this invitation to consider this moment if it were futureless how open it might feel how little sense clinging would make. How deeply we might let go. Maybe you can even sense into that openness right now. Just how differently the moment would be if we were unentangled by becoming. And so just sketching like ways in which the self may be kind of effect of fear, but it's also what makes death so terrifying. The perishing of the Matthew within Matthew. And I don't think it's a complete consolation. I don't think it absolves us of the work of grieving and the tenderness and the beauty of that. But when we do know there's no Matthew within Matthew in the way we imagine, no Matthew within Matthew that it will be destroyed by death. It's not complete consolation, but it becomes less of a drama. Rumi says, if you bake bread with the wheat that grows on my grave, you'll become drunk with joy, and even the oven will recite ecstatic poems. If you come to pay your respects, even my gravestone will invite you to dance. So don't come without your drum. Last one, quickly. Charlotte Chocobeck. With unfailing kindness, life shows us exactly what we need to learn. With unfailing kindness, life shows us exactly what we need to learn. It just pops up.
Now, first, it doesn't mean this is a just world. And it doesn't mean that harm happens for a good reason. And doesn't mean that harm is deserved in any way. This is not that. This is an empowering framework for welcoming the truth of the past, all of life, into our heart. This is a view, a way of approaching life. Ajahn Chah said, everything is teaching us. And so Joko Bakir is inviting us to shift into a, a kind of a mode of living where it's not about getting, but about learning. The mode of our life is about learning rather than getting. Yeah. And then it's not that we don't try to get what we want, but... What does pop up, we take as an opportunity for the cultivation of wisdom and love. And we know there's nowhere to go other than the heart. If I thought there were an escape, if I thought there were viable alternatives to love and awareness, I would take them. I would. But as is said, the only way forward is through. And when we take that teaching into our heart, um, the prospects of the future are somehow less intimidating we kind of already know there's no escape. And so it's like, okay, come what may, I will learn. My practice will be there for me. And, uh, that too is a consolation. Not always the medicine to surrender, but that helps me to surrender when surrender is the medicine. Helps me... uh, sense that uh, the difficulty of this life will not be wasted. I will not squander it. I will not let it be meaningless. I will use it. Maybe so. Let's sit for a minute.
Thank you. Um, yeah, so it's uh, is now your job to uh, decide what to uh, pick up from that and what to leave behind. Yeah, it's your path. They're your pep talks. Don't pick up my weirdness, you know. You just find your way. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 